This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Constantine Kissin and Francis Foster, uh, otherwise known as Trigonometry. Thank you for joining me in the trenches, gentlemen. No, it's good to be with you, man. Lovely to be here. So if we are in a war, which position on the battlefield are you gentlemen? I'm going to be the chef, mate. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to be preparing lovely things <laughs> at the back. And, you know, if my side loses, I'll be transferred to cook for the other people. That's where I am. <laughs> and what about like you, like eating. Well, uh, you know, I, I, the, the, the battle of ideas, a, a battle and a war are very different things, I think. So uh, I try and stay away from thinking about everything that we talk about on the show as a war, because the moment you have a war, you have to have an enemy uh, and you have to kill the enemy or destroy the enemy. Uh, whereas, you know, I'm much more uh, sympathetic to the idea. I can't remember who it was that said that uh, all wars are civil wars for all men are brothers. And I'm really coming around to the idea that what we need is not a war, but rather to, to heal whatever divide we have in society. Um, so that's my take on it. I'd, I'd rather not think of it as a war because then maybe it won't be a war. Do you see what I'm saying? One of the biggest factors, obviously, is social media, uh, which is amplified and caused many of the divides that we now see. Uh, so in the past, you used to talk about the sort of Hegelian dialectic, the idea you have synth uh, thesis, synthesis, uh, antithesis, I fucked that up massively. Um, <laughs> you have thesis, antithesis, and then you have synthesis, right? You come together at the end of that process of debate, discussion, you know, fighting, whatever. The problem now that we, we seem to have is there's a runaway process going on whereby uh, one side is going further off the one end, the other side is going off further the other end. And the problem is the algorithms of the big tech companies only reward you for going further off that deep end. They don't reward you for going, you know what, actually, I'm not going to dive into this, or actually, I'm going to be slightly more moderate. And I see this in my own you know, communication. When I put a tweet out that's a little bit provocative, a little bit inflammatory, a little bit uh, like that, it gets a lot of clicks and likes and retweets. Whereas if I say something a little bit more moderate and a little bit more sensible, uh, it won't do as well. So the, the social media side of it is one thing, and I think they have to start understanding the co those companies that monetizing people's anger and outrage is not helpful to the world in which mm -hmm. we live. Um, and that pressure will come through, you know, government pressure. It will come through societal pressure. Uh, so that that might be one of the ways that 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 might start on the systemic level. On a personal level, though, we all have a choice, right? When you go on YouTube or when you go on Twitter or when you talk to other people, you have a choice as an individual. Do you treat this person as a human being who has a different opinion with which you disagree? Or do you treat them as the enemy? And every day we make hundreds of choices like that. So when I say I am trying to do that, I'm not saying I'm succeeding in every one of those decisions, but I'm trying desperately to make as many of those decisions constructive as I possibly can. And the problem is as well with social media is it doesn't mm. offer people the opportunity to heal. It doesn't offer people the opportunity to repair a, 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 a relationship because these two people were strangers and they've been 
pitted against one another. Mm. The things that make us human are the fact that you can see reactions, the fact that you can see that you've upset someone. Most people, when they've seen they've upset another human being, they don't like that feeling. But you don't get that from being on Twitter, etc. I can tell you haven't been to Russia. <laughs> but you just get incentivized to behave mm. in a particular way, whereby either you win, you destroy them, you wreck them, etc., etc. And as a result of that, that just incentivizes a type of behavior, which means we're never going to have that element of forgiveness. Yeah. We're never going to have people admitting they're wrong. And more importantly than that, we're never going to have people examining their own biases. And you go, you know what? Actually, this thing that I believe, it isn't true. There's holes in this argument. And what's happening is ordinary people are caught in the middle of it. And then you involve politics. And what we do now is we politicize everything. So a vaccine, whether or not to take a vaccine, which is actually personal choice mm. and should be the choice of every single person, what they put in their body has now become political. So if you take the vaccine, if you're on one side, then that's because, you know, you're an idiot, you don't know what you're doing, they're experimental drugs, blah, blah, blah. And on the other side, if you don't, then you're unclean, you're putting my life in danger. And when you start involving politics and everything, what happens is that people get divided, people get angry, people start dehumanizing one another. And then we are where we are, where we're incredibly tribal. Uh, well, you've actually created a very nice segue because Constantine, you made that remarkably brilliant video uh, just a short while ago about uh, vaccine hesitancy. Tell me a little bit about that. I mean, it's it's an incredible uh, piece of art. Is essentially what it is. Mm. Well, uh, I wrote I wrote it initially as a Twitter thread that went super viral a few months ago. Then it became an article, and eventually we got round to recording it as a video because we're quite busy and a lot going on and lazy as well. So, uh, you know, we got around to, but basically the idea of this, uh, of my thesis is that over the last five years in particular, you could go back further if you wanted for us here in the UK, the invasion of Iraq uh, and other things that have happened in, in the past uh, that have eroded trust. They've eroded trust in government. They've eroded trust in the media. Uh, over the course of the pandemic, I would argue that modelers and scientists and uh, many doctors uh, said things that eroded trust in what they say. And so uh, while I am in no way attempting to say people who don't take the vaccine are right to do so, that's not a call that I can make. Everyone's got to, first of all, everyone's got to make their own decision. Second, I'm not a scientist, etc. But I, the point of my video about why people are hesitant about taking the vaccine is that if you keep lying to people, they will cease to believe you at some point. It's the boy who cried wolf. Uh, and I think one of the things that I'm keen to emphasize to the, the sort of mainstream people that listen to our show, the journalists, the politicians and whatever, is that you're not going to persuade people of whatever it is that you want to persuade them to do or to believe or to not do or not believe if you keep insulting them, if you keep lying to them, if you never apologize when you get things wrong, if you call people thick or racist or stupid for, for making perfectly reasonable and sensible decisions, for taking perfectly reasonable and sensible uh, positions on things, for being concerned about the things that they're concerned about. If you make everything 
you know, some kind of moral perversion or moral crime against humanity, no matter how small the transgression is or whatever, then people are going to tune you out. They're not going to mm. believe you. And then when the wolves actually come, when the, a pandemic actually comes, people are not going to trust you as much. And then you're going to have a problem in terms of getting people to follow rules and, and do the things that you want them to do. Now, Francis and I are both quite hesitant uh, about many of the things that have been done in the name of stopping the virus, if you like. Uh, and a lot of them seem to me to be counterproductive, ineffective, and so on. But on the other hand, I also think that a lot of people on the sort of antithesis side of the argument have gone quite off the deep end and are, are talking about conspiracy theories that I don't believe in for one second. So that's kind of the, the tension that we have. And I think it's, it's important for people to understand that just because someone believes something that you disagree with or that is factually incorrect and you're mm. based on what you know, does not mean that they're a bad person that needs to be insulted or talked down to or whatever. That doesn't mean that you can't say, well, this idea that you're putting forward, I don't agree with it. And frankly, it sounds a bit silly to me and I, whatever. But if you start insulting people and calling them stupid or selfish, which people are now doing, uh, or you start punishing them for having the wrong opinion, which has been happening for some time, uh, then you're really in trouble. You want to find the common ground, not the stuff mm. that that creates the Grand Canyon between you. I mean, that is so important, is seeing the humanity in another person. In realizing that politics isn't the most important thing. It's just not. There are so many more important things. And, and the great tragedy of society now is that 10, 15 years ago, we used to, we, we understood this. Mm. We did it. We've always conflated politics with morality, but we ha we didn't conflate it as much as we do now. We, you know, you could see, you know, people met up for a, a particular, you know, for a, for, you know, meeting, a group of friends meeting or a family meeting. They'd be like, oh, that's Uncle Eric. You know, he's a bit on the right, but it's absolutely fine. You know, and you'd talk with Uncle Eric. But now when you see Uncle yeah. Eric, you dehumanize him. You know, he's, he's this, he's that, he's whatever mm. else. And it doesn't matter that Uncle Eric, might, Uncle Eric might have all of these wonderful qualities. But because he thinks in a way that is different to you, he's automatically wrong, evil, and a pariah. And the problem is, and, and we're seeing it right the way through society, we can't carry on like this. Because what we're doing is we're fragmenting day upon day upon day. And as a result, we're losing cohesion. And it's, it's also a kind of narcissism where somebody assumes that their opinion is superior to somebody else's. Mm. Mm. It, 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 that is part of it but I think another part of it is we've kind of like I, I've been thinking about this in the context you mentioned you know the vaccine hesitancy in a free society it is inevitable that on any issue people aren't going to agree on everything right you're never going to get to a position where everyone does what the government tells them to do because that's one of the symptoms of a free society if you want to live in, in a country where everyone does what the government tells them to do you know we've got a, a one-way ticket to north korea for mm -hmm. you and we'll happily pay for you to go there but unless you want to live in that society you have to accept that there's going to be people who don't do the mainstream thing who don't follow the rules many times they're going to be people who are doing things that are harmful to themselves or to others or whatever like you know we don't we, it's never occurred to us, certainly in this country, to 
discriminate against people who are overweight or discriminate against people who are smokers or discriminate against people who in, engage in extreme sports or or who who cycle in london which is quite dangerous or, or whatever it is right like that's never been an issue that people thought well actually we need to punish these people into mm. making the right decisions right but now because there's a pandemic and because people are scared and because the, the issues become heated these conversations are being had and in in the rest of europe they're actually implementing draconian policies to punish people who haven't had the vaccine they're fining them they are locking them in their homes they are they are threatening them with losing their jobs etc 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 all of that to me is is very very dangerous and some of the lines that are being crossed uh, are, are really really not good but equally and this is the important piece as well is like francis and i just had COVID. Uh, a month ago we both had it quite badly we are not downplaying the seriousness of the disease at all uh there are groups of you know cohorts of the population for whom it's it's extremely lethal um so it's about having a sensible dialogue and i my my problem is when you start to see people being demonized when you start to see people being smeared when you start to see people on both sides being mm. Uh, you know, attacked for just having a different opinion or doing a different thing. That to me, that to me is much worse than the pandemic itself. I'm about to ask you about the left and the right. But before I do, I just realized what was different about the two of you. Your moustaches are gone. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was an experiment that will never be repeated. Exactly. <laughs> what was all, we, what, we what was that all about? For charity. Uh, <laughs> it, it was from it was from Movember, which I don't know if you do in South Africa. Yes, but you here you you yeah exactly. So we grew we grew moustaches, made ourselves look like twats, and tried to raise some money for prostate cancer. Whew. So who who had who had the more um, the more brilliant moustache? I think Francis did. Oh, right. so he just, looked like his great hero. Yeah, I did. I, I you know what the worst thing was so. We, we, we did an, uh, an interview called The Truth About Trigonometry, where we talked about how we started out and our journey through the show. Yeah, I watched and that. It was, was very a, good. Yeah, and uh, there was a clip in it, uh, which was me talking about diversity, which is basically saying that diversity, there's the, what we call diversity isn't actually diversity because there's no diversity of opinion. Diversity, the clip, the title of the clip was having people of different colors, ages, races, all saying the same thing. And Joe Rogan retweeted it, right? Which was, of course, lovely. But it then went out to like 7 million people with me and this demented moustache on my face. Looking looking <laughs> like a well-known former German leader yeah. from the 1930s. <laughs> and then underneath, there were all these comments like, who's this douche with this stupid moustache, man? And like, just all that. So, so, sorry, man. I, <laughs> I, I get a bit feisty on Twitter sometimes. Yeah. So yeah, so it was just all comments about what what a complete gimp I looked like. What has happened? What? How have we arrived at this point where we're in the year 2022 and everybody is offended by everything? I mean, that is a question for the ages. And the reality is that there's a lot of different reasons mm. as to why that is. Uh, education system must take a lot of the blame for it. What the kids are being taught, how they're being taught. You know, they go into university, they're being given these ideas, they then come out and they are the people who are then going to be in charge of the media, et cetera, et cetera. And look, I think as a, as a generation, uh, 
you, you can see it. You can see it when, when you talk to employers and they say how much more difficult the newer generation is, you know, how much more sensitive they are. It's you can look at it. I mean, you and I were talking about this the other day. You can look at it in sports. Uh, managers who used to be this sort of uh, quite hardline disciplinarians in football, for example, right? Uh, they don't really do well anymore because this new generation mm. of player, the 20-year-olds, they all need an arm around the shoulder. They all need a little hug. They all need their tears wiped, etc. Uh, and, uh, you know, that that's a changing of the generation. I don't... I think Francis, as a former teacher, is is going to blame the education system because he's seen it from the inside, hmm. and uh, you know that the, the the education system, I think, is fair to say, leans left in terms of the teachers and so on. Um, but I also think there's other probably bigger processes that have been happening uh, over a longer period of time, uh, whether that's the end of the Cold War and the West no longer feeling like it needs to be strong because it has no enemy there is no challenge whether that's the the long-running breakdown of the family so there are fewer mm. men bringing up their own children uh, a lot of the time so creating structure and discipline mm. and, and on all of that the, there's lots and lots of things going on and coming back to, to, to social media social media is a is a very uh, if you look at the strategies that people use on social media they're very uh, you know, Jordan Peterson has talked about this on the show. They're quite feminized ways of mm. being in the world. Uh, and so I would say that more broadly, and I don't say this necessarily as a criticism because I think women are wonderful and some of the female ways of being in the world are brilliant and really necessary and, and have helped me in massive ways in my life, for sure, to take some of the edges off me. I found that incredibly useful. But also, as a society, we have become more feminized. And I think that's why you're seeing this uh, greater focus on, well, how do I feel my emotions and, and things like that. And, and you know, we've, we've become much more uncomfortable with uh, violence. We've become much more uncomfortable with physicality of any kind. We've become much more uncomfortable with conflict. All of these things, to me, are a sign of that process as well. So I think there's all, a whole bunch of things that are going on. But also as well, like before, like, and I can remember, and I'm going to sound old now, but when I was growing up, there, there wasn't the same currency or status in being a victim. But now with something like Facebook, you can regale about how, you know, something awful happened to you and you put it up there and then you get thousands and thousands of likes, thousands and thousands of comments. Whereas before something awful happened to you, you went and spoke to somebody about it and they went, right, okay, well then, you know, dust yourself down and carry on and stiff up a lip. And look, there were downsides to that particular way of being but my point is that we have now given a currency and a status to being a victim mm -hmm. so people who continually seek victim status are able to increase their status particularly on social media etc can you gents remember the time before facebook it's becoming a blur to me yes <laughs> yes just about yes Yes, it was, a, it was a very, very different world. People forget that even as recently as 2004, there was no YouTube, there was no Facebook. You know, there was there, mm. the only thing that, in my, in my mind, was it was Bebo and the other one was MySpace. But the reality was most of us weren't online. Most of us didn't spend our time online. And when Facebook first came in, it was sold to us as a way to connect with people and to, you know, and to stay connected. But the reality is, and I always think about this, I, I, 
I saw this very, very glamorous couple in, in a restaurant, and they sat down opposite each other. And you look at them, and they were at the very peak of their lives, or at the very peak of their youth, their beauty. And all they did was literally look, stare at their phones for the entire meal. What we've been sold is a sham. It's not a way to connect. It's a way to disconnect. And that's what we... you're seeing right the way through society. That's what Francis does, by the way. Yeah. He goes around <laughs> restaurants staring at beautiful couples. Yeah, yeah I do. Judging them. Exactly. So you've got to do something when you're pushing 40. Well, you gentlemen are comedians. Uh, so you're supposed to mm. see that stuff. Well, th this is it. The, I mean, originally, the role of the comedian was to satirize and, you know, observe the minutiae in society and human experiences and then relay it to an audience. All the, the greatest comedians did that. And where the biggest laughs always were, were in the taboo subjects, the subjects that you weren't allowed to talk about. That's where the biggest laughs were, where you laughed and then took a sharp intake of breath and said, and thought to yourself, I can't believe, you know, he or she or like someone like Joan Rivers has just said that. That, mm -hmm. to me, was the apex of the art form. But I think more and more it's become more fraught as for comedians. My wife and I were watching Friends not so long ago, and mm. she said to me, can they, can they still get away with some of those, those jokes today? Mm. And Friends was tame. Yeah, yeah. Friends was in... Friends it was, was a in, family show. Yeah, Friends was incredibly tame. But when you think about it, you know, you say that, and then there's part of me going... What's he talking about? And then I look at it more deeply. You know, the fact, you know, that the the fat suits. I mean, there were some jokes where, you know, they use the word gay as an insult. It was a pejorative. Look, part of it was because it was of its time. But there's also part of it where you you couldn't do the jokes that, that, that you did at that time. Anymore. No. Even though, even though they're not, they're not malicious, they're not discriminatory. Uh, the, it was all done with a lot of compassion mm. uh, for everybody, and everybody got made fun of. But uh, the, it, that that entire show couldn't get made now because mm -hmm. uh, there's not enough diversity visually. Yep. Uh, some of the jokes are not the right jokes, and and, and also I think the tone has, has changed as well. Like, I I think I I've definitely would say I've seen since the time that I used to watch Friends. Like a lot of the not all, but quite a lot of the entertainment shows that have done really well, whether that's House of Cards or Game of Thrones or others of that sort of nature, they've, they've, we've really become very interested in the darker sides of human nature, I think, in, the, in, in recent times. Mm -hmm. So Friends, which was all about lighthearted and relief, I just don't, I don't know that it would do as well in the current climate either. You guys are, mm -hmm. are British, and in my view, uh, Britain has produced uh, probably the best comedians in history. Um, and let's go a bit further back to, you know, Monty Python and you, Peter you're, you're triggering Francis <laughs> here. He doesn't agree with that statement. <laughs> It, it oh. depends what you it depends what you mean by comedians. To me, the greatest stand-up comedians have always been American, but that's because stand-up is an inherently American art form. Whereas, but yeah, I, I take your point. You know, if you look at people like Monty Python, John, you know, particularly John Cleese, brilliant, brilliant comedian. And I'm thinking of the party with Peter Sellers. Mm, yes, brilliant film. It's that's actually my dad's favorite comedy film. I'm but sure the could... viewers are very interested in that. <laughs> yeah. <about your> dad, <laughs> Mate, you should check it out. If you've never seen The Party, you no, should. No, it... I, I'm not denying The Party may or may not be a good film. I'm just <laughs> saying that it may not be relevant 
to an audience on the internet what your dad likes to watch. Well, maybe they should, because actually, if they listen to him, he's got very good taste. So, look, we, we are two comedians. Uh, we started uh, our YouTube show, which is called Trigonometry, uh, in uh, April of 2018. We started it because we were operating in the comedy industry, uh, where we started to feel some of these tendencies that we've been talking about really affecting the way that that world was operating. So in addition to the fact that everyone in comedy is super woke and, and you know, thinks that, uh, you know, anyone who's not on the far left of politics is automatically a massively right-wing, evil, bigot, racist, whatever. In addition to all of that, we started to see some of these more uh, progressive sort of ways of thinking where, uh, you know, the idea of a meritocracy, which has never been the case in comedy. It's not true to say that stand-up comedy has always been a meritocracy and everyone has got what they deserve. It was never like that, but it was an aspiration. Mm. It, it, the, the idea was that if you were good enough, you would eventually make it to the top. Now, that never quite was true. Of course it wasn't because it's never true anywhere. But that was one of the things that inspired, I think, a lot of comedians to work hard and to get better. Kind of like sports, right? In sports, you sort of like go, well, it doesn't matter if this guy's a bit of a dick and this guy doesn't work very hard. At the end of the day, when they go out onto the field, if they perform, that's what matters, right? But in comedy, what, what we saw while we were there is there was a big push to to kind of to, to focus on what they now call representation, on making sure that if you had five comedians in a show, uh, you had the right visual mix and you had the right this mix and the right that mix. And uh, it's antithetical to comedy to do that because what you're doing is you're not picking people who are the funniest people uh, to entertain the crowd. You're picking people because you have a social engineering agenda. So it was a bunch of these things that we started to notice and we started the show because we didn't know what was happening. We didn't know what was happening. I, I, I would say we still don't quite know what was happening, as probably is evident to the viewers. Mm. Uh, but what we wanted to do is interview people who did know what was happening or who had a claim about what was happening that seemed credible to us to try and understand, you know, why did people vote for Brexit? Why did people vote for Donald Trump? Why are some of the other movements that we've seen in recent times happening? Uh, and to try and get under the skin of all of these issues mm. and to have an honest conversation where we were not afraid to go to the darker places of those discussions. And, you know, and the problem with being in that type of environment is that you're fed narratives, continually you're fed narratives. And it, you, you get fed one narrative, everyone who voted Brexit is racist, stupid, thick, whatever else. You know, uh, all white people are racist, is another narrative. You know, white men, their time is over. You know, that's that, true. that is true, actually. You know, they've been on top for too long, you know, particularly ignoring what we have in the in the UK, which is a class system, all of this. So you get fed these narratives. And after a while, you start thinking to yourself, well, these are ultimately one dimensional. They're not really representative of the truth. They're completely lacking in nuance. Mm. There must be something else here. And that's where trigonometry really came from. We've got the narrative that we've been fed by the mainstream media, by other people, blah, blah, blah. By our own industry. By our own industry. What's really going on? And let's take a dispassionate look at what's going on underneath the bonnet, as, as it were, of these, of these narratives. And have you found that you yourself 
uh, both of you have learned a lot from your guests. Yeah, well, that really is what the show is about. It's a very selfish endeavor, to be honest with you. It's a, it, the purpose of the show is for us to educate ourselves about the things that we find interesting. Mm. That's it, really. Uh, and, it, and thankfully, as we've done that, and as we've talked to people who we thought can fill in gaps in our own thinking, you know, we're not the only people in the world that want to know, that want to be educated, that want to hear an alternative, that want to hear a different way of thinking. And also that want to have or be involved in a conversation where people aren't jumping down each other's throats the moment a trigger word has been uttered, the moment that someone has said, well, actually, this thing that everyone accepts isn't quite true, and here is why. Uh, and people actually hear that out, and those arguments are explored in a, in a respectful way. So, you know, a lot of people, I think, enjoy that part of it. We enjoy the process of educating ourselves as we go along. Yeah, it's a process of educating ourselves. That is, that is, for me, the most joyful part of it because... What about working with me? No, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but the, to be, that is the most joyful part of it because you go into you know, an interview with somebody and you don't know a lot or you've, you've just... You've kind of made up your mind on a minuscule bit of information mm -hmm. that is actually not representative and doesn't actually tell you a lot of the issue as a whole. And gradually, more and more, you start to uncover the other side. And as a result of that, you start to be able to make up your mind. And I think the success of the show has been that, in that we don't pretend to be experts. We don't pretend to be any different from the average person on the street, right? Number one. And number two, we don't lecture people. You make up your own minds. We'll, have, we'll interview Andrew Adonis, who is the ultimate arch-remainer, and he will go on and explain to you why if, if we went ahead with Brexit, this country would sink into the sea and we'd all die of cholera, right? Or you could have somebody else who would say, you know, the Brexit was the best thing that was going to happen to this country, etc., etc. And that's what we've always tried to do, provide you with two different points of view, and at the end of it, you make up your own mind because ultimately you're an adult. I mean, our first interview with Posey got a little bit awkward at the start and we were a bit, maybe not awkward is not the right word. It was, uh, but it, it was certainly a voyage of discovery for us both. Yeah. I think that you could see, I think the reason, part of the reason that interview has done so well is because you could see two people literally having their minds blown mm. <laughs> in, in, you know, it, it, right at that moment. So. Awkward is, is not the word I would actually use for, for the first Posey interview, but you could see two people having their preconceptions mm. challenged and actually being forced to change their mind in that moment, which is fascinating to see. Just to give a bit of context, uh, Posey Parker is a women's rights campaigner here in the UK who, who is a very... She insists on being very clear and very factual about the trans debate. Mm. Uh, and this was recorded at a time when that conversation was not being had in that way. Uh, people were very scared, including us at the time, because uh, you know now that we, we, we do this full time and it's, it's, it's a show that, that has a revenue stream and we have staff and it, there's a stability to it. Back then, we were just two comedians so working in a, in a basically in a woke comedy club that ah. that generously lent us a room uh, that we repurposed for the sake of the podcast. So 
every guest that we had on that had the quote unquote the wrong opinion uh, for that woke industry was a threat to our very existence and and the show, which we we were always very ambitious for. So she came in and she was pretty, you know, unrelenting about her position on it, which I have to say, I was sort of leaning towards anyway, but we, we did give her a bit of a hard time uh, because we were trying to get to the truth. And frankly, as a result of that conversation and then other conversations that we had with people who helped us clarify our thinking on the issue, our opinion on it changed significantly and mm. became... And, and it's not even that like it cha- before we thought the sky is green and now we think it's blue. It's more like we always suspected the sky was blue, but we also knew that it was dangerous to say that it's not green. No, it wasn't dangerous. It was fucking suicidal. Yeah, for, 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 the, for the world that we were operating in. So, and I think that actually is a lot of, a lot of the time what happens when people quote-unquote get red pill or change their mind. It's not so much that they thought something very firmly one way and then they started thinking something completely the opposite. It's more like, they always kind of suspected that there was something off about the story that they'd been told their whole life. And here is an explanation of some of the things that now make sense about why that is. Do you think these labels matter anymore? With left and right, they don't matter anymore. I mean, Brexit highlighted that beautifully because you got people, you know, on one part of the left, dare we say, well, on, on the left going, all Brexiteers are right-wing racist, blah, blah, blah. Jeremy Corbyn is and was a Brexiteer. Jeremy Corbyn has been avowedly anti-EU his entire political career. You know, Barbara Castle, another firebrand of the left. Uh, Tony Benn. These people were firmly anti-EU and would have voted leave. And there's lots of people on the left who were ver- vehemently pro-Brexit. So this idea of that left and right, it, it, it doesn't work anymore. And that's one example of, of that. And it's also as well, there's also the authoritarian aspect of it. There's also, you know, the libertarian. Like you, Someone can be on the right, for example, mm-hmm. uh, and be a, a right-wing libertarian and be, have completely opposing views to a right-wing authoritarian or someone who is incredibly, incredibly socially conservative. So I think these blanket terms, they don't really work anymore. And as a result, I think that's part of the reason we have these disagreements, because someone will go, oh, this person on the left and point to Owen Jones and then talk about another person on the left and say, you know, I'm trying to think someone like a Paul Embury, when actually in many ways they have completely opposing views. Mm. I would add to that as well that I I don't necessarily agree with Francis about the left and right and Brexit thing because just because some people conflated Brexit with being right wing doesn't mean that the label of left or the label of right is necessarily Mm. useless. I think there are some overarching themes that that most people on the left will get behind. For example, the idea that the state should play an expansive and active role in supporting people who are struggling, that is a fundamentally left-wing idea, right, economically. And on the right, there will be other things about uh, about the way that people are or the way that people ought to be. For example, it is a fundamentally right-wing understanding that human beings are flawed, right? The left sort of tends to see 
uh, human beings as these malleable creatures mm. to be perfected by society and the government. The right takes a different view, which is human beings are flawed. They can't quite be cured of their flawedness, so we have to accept them the way they are. So I think it really depends on how you use these labels. I think they're useful in some contexts and less useful in others. I think Francis is right that the authoritarian versus libertarian thing is much more more important at this moment in time. Mm -hmm. At this point in time, uh, that is a crucial distinction. But when this pandemic ends, whenever that is, 2027 <laughs> or, or whenever this happens, right? <laughs> 3006. Uh, 3006. Uh, <laughs> the economic damage that we have done to ourselves and that the, the pandemic, look, the, most of the damage, I would argue, came from the pandemic itself. It was always going to be disruptive. But a lot of the damage has also come from the way that we've chosen to respond. Uh, and all of that is going to have to be sorted out. And left and right are going to play very heavily into that because on economics, the distinction is quite accurate, I think. Mm -hmm. So, look, it's, it's complicated. And the one thing as well, I think, Francis makes a good point about is not only are they, they sometimes not useful, actually sometimes they're really counterproductive and unhelpful because what a left-wing person is in the UK will be very different to what a left-wing person is in South Africa or in Russia or even in America. Mm. So when we use these terms, when let's say I was talking about the left, your audience in South Africa might be hearing the word left, but the pictures they mm. have, the images and the videos and the streams of information they have that match up to the term the left in their head are completely different to what I may mean by that term. Mm. So so sometimes they can actually be unhelpful as well. I mean, you, you see that with the term liberal. What liberal means in the UK and what liberal means in the US are two completely different things. Mm. So you, you see that in a lot of our interviews. Constantine could use the word liberal in the UK sense. And then you get people saying, oh, that's not what it means. But it, we're talking about the same word meaning different things. And that as well is what muddies the waters when people are having these discussions. Okay, but then how do we navigate that? Well, why do we need to navigate it? What is the purpose of navigating it? That's, that's a good counter question. I don't know the answer. Right. So why do we, this is the thing is like, why, why does that, this is the thing that bothers me most of all about the position we find ourselves in. And I understand having, you know, spoken to evolutionary psychologists and biologists and uh, read about these issues a lot. Human beings are always going to be tribal, mm. right? But to me, I want to fight against that with every fiber of my being. I don't want to be part of your fucking left-wing tribe or your right-wing tribe or your up mm. tribe or your down tribe. I want to think for myself, right? So when to me, I don't know what the purpose of these labels is exactly. There are times when they're useful to describe a particular philosophy, as I said, for example, if you want to talk about the redistribution of, of societal wealth, right? The left, broadly speaking, has a particular view of that. And the right, broadly speaking, has a different view of that. And on those discussions, those are useful things. But, but beyond that, politically, what is the function? What is the gain to be had by going, these people are over here in this camp and these people are over here in this camp? Like, I think human beings are much more complex than that. Uh, there are, you know, for example, you know, we talk about authoritarian, libertarian and all that. With COVID now, we had a vote recently about vaccine passports in this country. Uh, it was uh, mainly conservative libertarians who mm -hmm. voted against it, but also radical leftists like Jeremy Corbyn and Diane Abbott and others. 
So, uh, you know, I, I think these labels sometimes are being used as a sort of, as a way of putting people into groups in which they don't necessarily belong. So you, that's why I'm asking you the question, what, what is the purpose of, of, of having them? I think part of the reason is because it's a shortcut and human beings, we like shortcuts. Mm. You know, if it, that we've got a limited amount of hours in the day. If we can sort of put someone into this particular group, we're going to do it because then it means that we don't have to think about it or that particular issue in as much depth. But the, the problem is, you know, as, as well, is we need to stop thinking like that because it's tearing society apart because a lot of the times these labels are used to dehumanize people and they're used to, particularly the term right wing, the, the, what right wing actually means when people describe someone as right wing doesn't mean that they believe in, you know, small government, very low government or, you know, minimal government intervention in people's lives, maximum freedom. Mm. What people mean invariably when they say right wing is racist. You know, and you can be a right wing and ultra libertarian, for example. Mm. And that, so that is the problem, is that frequently the labels are used to smear, dehumanize, and most egregiously what these labels are often used for is to actually shut down conversation. Because somebody's yeah. talking or expressing a view and you go, that's right wing. And again, Bam. just very quickly to add, what Francis is saying is accurate in a specific context. It's accurate in the UK, it's accurate in America, maybe accurate in certain other countries, and particularly in Western Europe, and, and in the Anglosphere as well. But in Russia, where I come from, the, the word right wing isn't used like that at all. But to call someone a liberal, it has exactly the same effect. So uh, liberals are smeared, liberals are treated as uh, you know, irrational or evil or somehow undermining the system or whatever. So it, it's very context specific, which is why I say, uh, how useful are the labels? The only reason trigonometry has worked is because we work together. It's not mm. about, you know, it's not about Constantine. It's not about me. It's not about anybody else. It's about the show. And when we started out talking about bands and we were talking about the financials mm. of it, I said, look, whatever happens, we need to have the REM model. I don't know if you know the, what the REM model is, the band REM. So the band R.E.M., when they started, they had an agreement. And it's part of the reason they lasted so long. They went, it doesn't matter who wrote the song. It doesn't matter who came up with this riff or this lyric. It doesn't matter who came up with the song title or maybe they wrote this song that was more popular than that song. We split everything equally and we take every and we the praise is spread. Equally. Exactly. From each according to his ability <laughs> to each according to his need. <laughs> Making communism real in 2022. That's what we do. <laughs> um, but I mean, after but, that quick... Sorry, go on. But, but, but that's, the, that's the point. It's when you start to involve ego in any particular mm. operation mm. and it becomes about sating or satisfying or amplifying one person over another, that's where things start to go wrong. And the most important mm. thing to us, actually... And what I'm really proud of is when you go, when you watch a trigonometry shot uh, interview, doesn't matter who it is, it's not about us, it's about the guests. And it's our job as interviewers to get and to crystallize the guests' thoughts on a range of different subjects for the audience. Because there is nothing worse than for an interviewer who continually butts in, continually gives their opinion. 
So that's what we're really proud of, and that's why the show works. Except when it's Sukkur at Bhakti, then it's about YouTube's policies. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. As we called him, Dr. Grossbalen. Dr. Yeah. Big Ball. <laughs> Uh, indeed. Yeah. Uh, when yeah. So that was uh, that 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 was a trip because when we recorded that interview, we thought you know forty thousand people were going to see it, and you know he said some things that went against uh, the mainstream view on COVID at the time. We didn't expect it to be this phenomenon. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I was having uh, lunch with a friend of mine, uh, and uh, when we were eating, uh, this guy came in. This uh, Guy, South African guy came in, black guy from South Africa. He went to me, are you the guy? I went, Am I the, what, what have I done now? Is this you? Pulled out a phone and then just showed the, the, us two with Sakarit Bhakti. And he went, my dad gave me this in Durban. Did you? Did you? And then I was like, yeah, it is me. So we could never have predicted what happened with that interview and how it went super viral, et cetera, et cetera. Cancel culture to me is like someone says something slightly offensive and then their career gets ruined. Mm. That's kind of what I think about when, when people say it. Maybe I'm wrong or misinterpreting, but that's my interpretation. What you are talking about is much more significant, which is having created these incredibly powerful tools for spreading of information. Um, we have now seen a process similar to what happened when, when human beings invented the printing press. And... Uh, the people could see could read the Bible for themselves and could read other books for mm -hmm. themselves and see what they said instead of having this class of of nobility and priests interpreting the truth for them. And that's, I think, what's happened uh, with our society as well, where we now we always kind of knew the media were lying to us. But mm -hmm. now we know how much they were lying to us and they're lying even more than they ever did. Right. Um, but with YouTube and all of that stuff that you talk about, I think what we've got is a dilemma genuinely a dilemma because on the one hand uh, you have the principle that i firmly believe in that human beings should be able to discuss ideas uh freely without restriction on the other hand these companies are under a lot of pressure for people who don't share my viewpoint who believe that the the way to assess uh, whether something should should be allowed is is not the fact that it just should be allowed because that's an important principle but because uh, but in a way that you look at what is the impact of that being discussed. Mm. And they think that if you suppress discussion of certain things, you prevent harm. Now, I personally think that's rubbish. In fact, I think actually when you suppress things, you give them more credibility and more appeal and more people go and find them because with the internet now, you're never going to be, be able to suppress anything. Uh, it will eventually pop up on another website or on some kind of closed forum or on the dark web or wherever. Mm. Um, so I just think censorship, first of all, is wrong and secondly, counterproductive. But you've got to understand that, you know, most of these companies, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, etc., they were created by some guy in a hoodie. And then, hey, 10 years later, he's a multi-billionaire uh, and his product is destroying the world. So, like, that's a level of responsibility these people probably weren't ready for. And they're being bombarded from a lot of different sides by people that are saying to them, your product is killing people. Why are you allowing this on your platform? It's medical misinformation, etc." Now, I happen to think that that is just a byproduct of living in a society in which people are going to have different opinions. Some of them are going to be completely wrong. Some of them are going to be damaging. It's true. They will cause other people to believe it and do things that they shouldn't do that will hurt them. 
but I just don't think you're going to, first of all, you're just not going to be able to get rid of that. Uh, and secondly, I think the principle of a free society is much more important even than uh, the fact that some people will say things that are harmful. And also as well, these big tech companies have the, I wouldn't say it's the original sin, but it's, it's very much that kind of Catholic idea whereby they feel that they brought Donald Trump to power and they made Brexit happen. Mm. You know, and a lot of people on that side of the argument make that say that consistently against these companies. Which is why I am always saying I believe in the freedom because I don't want mm. whoever it is deciding who gets elected president, mm. right? Donald Trump did not get elected president by Facebook or by Twitter. Donald Trump got elected president by the people of the United States. Right now, you may dislike Donald Trump, and I was never a big fan of his. Francis and I both voted remain in the Brexit referendum, but the will of the people has to be allowed to be expressed based on free consent that they have, based on the information that they seek out and that they receive. Right? That to me is non negotiable. And the fact that there are people on what you might call the left. Uh, to, even though those labels, as we've discussed, are not relevant, who think that what they're going to do is, well, we got, we allowed Trump to be elected, we allowed Brexit to happen, we must never let this happen again. That is what I fear the most. People who want to fuck with the political system for their own agenda because they think they know what the right thing is for the country. You don't. That's what a democracy is. People get to vote and they pick people and half the time they're going to pick someone you don't like. Get over it. We, and this is it. But they have got that original sin where they allow Trump or they facilitated Trump to be elected, Brexit to happen. So they feel that this could, should never, ever be allowed to happen again, mm. which then means that they come down harder on creators who have heterodox views or people speaking out that criticizes the mainstream narrative or goes against it. And you've seen it right the way mm. through a range of topics. We've all been the victim of having, you know, videos taken down or, you know, shadow banning, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a problem when you have these huge corporations which are in charge of disseminating information that are biased because the problem is they're created, made, and run by human beings. And we're all biased. So, so what we do about that, I don't know. Uh, is one of the alternatives then to uh, create parallel structures like i don't know odyssey but shoot things that in in the context of youtube for example if you're constantly being censored uh supporting mm. the um the other options or is dealing with youtube itself more important i mean look th these are very very difficult questions because mm. there is a libertarian argument which mm. is you know you you've got to create alternatives and that's the only way to do it you can't you know break up the these, market will save everything yeah exactly exactly but what happened to Parler? It got to a certain <laughs> level, and then the plug got pulled. Yeah. So, you know, that argument doesn't really work. And now Getter. And here's a is the same thing going to happen to Getter? If the plug got pulled on Getter next week, would that really surprise you? It wouldn't surprise mm. me. But to me, that's only, that's a fractional argument. Eventually, someone with enough money will come along that's got completely independent architecture and infrastructure, and they can sustain their own social media platform on their own. The question is, is it a good thing for society, which already has no consensus reality at all? Mm. We all live in our own world. Is it a good thing for our society for us to now consume our different content on different platforms where there's no chance 
of you encountering the opposite argument. There is no chance of you being offered a counterpoint. There's no chance where you watch a video that, like we did that video with who, which you mentioned with Dr. Suchara Bhakti, who, who had very controversial views about the COVID situation, the vaccine, etc. Well, I, to me, I've always said, look, for, if, when we put that out, if the government or someone else wants to do a debunking video and explain why he is wrong, I'll be the first to watch it because I'm interested in that, right? But if you create these alternative platforms, which only cater, which is what will happen to a very particular narrow field of, of, of uh, viewpoints, mm. what you end up with is a, an even worse echo chamber. And that comes back to what we were talking about earlier. Are you ever going to get to syn synthesis if we're all watching our own TV show and we all live in our own reality? That, to me, is, is a concerning part. So that's why I am keen for YouTube to get better uh, and to become less censorious and to become what it was actually at the beginning of the internet, which was a sort of wild, wild west in which anything goes and, you know, you enter your own risk. And sure, you, you can have parental controls and people under 18 shouldn't be able to access certain types of content. But by and large, man, we're, like we're all adults and we're all entitled mm. to see what, what, what people's opinions are. Now, there are lines, of course, when someone is inciting violence or, you know, the equivalent of shouting fire in a theater. But apart from that, it should all be out there because if you try and suppress it, it's just going to make it worse. Mm. And this is this is one of the things I would say, mm. you know, much as I don't think the labels are necessarily useful, but a lot of the left wing mentality. Remember when I talked about how they think that things can be perfected? Mm. A lot of the mistakes people on the left make and you know, just for balance, people on the right make a lot of mistakes as well, which we can talk about. But on the left, the mistakes that they make is they believe that utopia is possible, that if only we just did the right things, everything would be great. And the truth is, that isn't how life works. Mm. The truth is, when it comes to management of information and media and censorship and all of that, you've got a bunch of very bad choices. You can either censor stuff, which is bad in itself, and that leads people to become more invested in these conspiracies and counter narratives or whatever, or you cannot censor stuff, in which case a lot of that information will be out there and there will also be people who watch it and make bad decisions as a result, etc. There is no good option. So you just have to pick the one that you think is the least harmful. If you try and get a perfect result, you will do the biggest amount of damage. In front of you, there's a crystal ball. What do you see? I think we're in for a, a period of disruption that will continue for a long time. Uh, I think this is a very fractious era that we're living through uh, that will reshape society. Uh, when we talked about the printing press, the printing, the invention of the printing press caused centuries of war and change in society that was fundamental at every level. Uh, and the, the fourth industrial revolution that we're living through now with social media and big tech and all of that uh, seems to me, I'm not sure about war necessarily, but it's going to cause changes and shifts in society and human thinking and human behavior that are going to have a similar level of impact on our, on our race, on our civilization. I think everything's going to be great, mate. 
no, I don't. I don't. I think COVID has acted as a catalyst. What could the what COVID did is it sp- is it sped up where we were already going to go as a society. We were already going to go more and more to being on our phones, to communicating in this kind of fashion. But it was just going to happen at a slower rate. Mm. The fact that we locked everything down, the fact that everybody was forced to be using this kind of technology means it it brought it in at a rate that was good, that was you know that was far quicker than what would have, we originally anticipated. As a result of that, I think more and more people are going to retreat into the virtual world. They're going to spend more and more of their time consuming content, watching th- watching things online, spending most of their time online, communicating online, living online. And you're going to see it as well with the metaverse or meta, whatever it's called, whereby Zuckerberg is building a world for you to live in online. And I think more and more people are going to live in that world. And actually, the real world is just going to be seen as a place where you have to get essentials or you know, you, the supermarket or whatever else. But even that will go. And I think that eventually we're just going to be people spending most of our time in a virtual universe. Where can people find you? <laughs> uh, they can find us online. Um, on all the social media. Yeah. Uh, we're at TriggerPod on all the socials and on YouTube. Just search for Trigonometry, uh, like the, the gun trigger. Uh, we're, we're absolutely everywhere. So uh, get stuck into that virtual world with us <laughs> Constantine and Francis it's been a great pleasure thank you for joining me in the trenches thanks thank for you. having us cheers thank you my name is Germ this is Germ Warfare the Battle of Ideas if you enjoyed this podcast please visit supportgerm.com 